Welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Reform. In this episode, we are going to continue to talk about the importance of diverse representation in education. In July, Nuha Nakvi and I talked with Dr. Jason Otley, a race scholar and social entrepreneur. He invests in education and advocacy programming to support sustainable and progressive education infrastructures. Dr. Otley received his PhD in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies from West Virginia University, focusing on Black male student perceptions of retention initiatives. Dr. Otley has a strong reputation for student development, strategic planning, and student empowerment. He's the executive director of the Bond Educational Group, a distinct organization from the Bond Project we talked with Dr. Howard about last week. The Bond Educational Group invests in the life of underrepresented communities, business entities, and government organizations with personalized coaching, professional trainings, and curated race equity audits. Their programs include the Young CEO Project, the Center for Advancing Equity, and Black Student Success Series, as well as Education's Most Wanted podcast. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Dr. Otley. So just to start us out, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do with the Bond Educational Group? We'll start with the second part of your question because it's the most freshest. The work I do with the Bond Educational Group uh, has been uh, life-changing. Life-changing for me and life-changing for all the people that we, we serve. When I finished my PhD program <clears throat> at the end of the 2018, December 2018 to be exact. I knew that I wanted to be part of an organization that um, went into the underserved communities and worked very closely with students and very closely with employers and very closely with uh, school districts that served students in these underserved communities. And that was part of uh, my passion because I came from an undeserved community. I was fortunate and blessed to have received some affordances that allowed me to get some great degrees, some great experiences, and, some, and, and receive some great accolades uh, and accomplishments. But all of those things were things that everybody should have access to. And because I had access to it, I wanted to think about, well, how can we provide a way for other students who look like me to also have access to those things? And so when I came back to Washington, D.C. in 2018, place where I was born and raised, uh, I didn't see an organization quite like that. I think there were organizations that existed that did some of that work, but not organizations that focused uh, on the student, the teacher that's teaching the student, the employer that the student goes and works for, and then the organization that the employer governs all of the policy. I didn't see that, so I created it. And I created it with a great team uh, of individuals. Uh, we started off with just three of us. Uh, and now nine months later, uh, we're probably at 15 uh, staff members to also include uh, student interns and student fellows. So it's an exciting time. And, I, and I'll say we did all of that before, you know, um, the, the brutal deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and before COVID hit. And so it just shows us that we were really on to something. We were doing it at a time where I think America was kind of saying, oh, we hear you, but we won't invest in what you're doing. And now 
America is forced to invest in what we're doing. And that just makes the work that we do even more awesome. You kind of touched on this, but what specifically led you <clears throat> to focus your career on educating black and brown communities? You know, I, I never had a, a, a black teacher after like the third grade, fourth grade. Um, so many of my black teachers were in the primary years. When I got to middle school and high school and college, I went to, I went to two different uh, PWIs, predominantly white institutions. And I hadn't had a, a teacher of color, a professor of color. And I just begin to think that there, that needs to change. And so that was my excitement into becoming an educator because I wanted, I wanted students who look like me to be able to see representation in their classrooms. You go into classrooms today, uh, specifically primary grades, and you ask students what they want to be when they grow up, typically they'll begin to respond to uh, careers that they see on TV because that's all they see. They see musicians and they see actors and actresses and celebrities, but they don't see educators. They don't see doctors who look like them, right? And so I wanted to go into education, one, so that I could be representative of all the great things that they could become, but two, because I realized I had a great network and I wanted to bring in every person of color who represented every industry across the globe so that they too could say, oh, wow, I see somebody of color who is an astronaut. I see somebody of color who is a pilot. That is amazing. Uh, and so that was my passion for going into education and wanting to, to educate uh, and teach uh, students of color because I wanted them to be able to see that whatever they, whatever they dreamed of, they could dream even deeper. They just had to be able to see it first. Absolutely. So we recently had the opportunity to sit down with one of your colleagues at the Bond Institute, Dr. Bev Frieda Jackson, who is a leading scholar on the issue of the school to prison pipeline. While chatting with her, we delved into the disturbing national trend where children are funneled into the school from public schools into the juvenile and criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, and many of these children have learning disabilities or histories of poverty and abuse or neglect who would really benefit from additional educational and counseling services. So what systemic factors put low income, first generation college students and individuals with disabilities at disadvantages when it comes to academic success at the collegiate level? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. First thing that comes to mind is the lack of resources. And so many uh, school districts who are located in, in impoverished uh, communities, they don't have AP courses. There are, there are none. And so when you think about how can I compete at the collegiate level and you enter into your first year and many of your, your white peers may have 18 to 21 credit hours brought in from AP exams, you're already playing from behind. And so academically, the rigor in schools that have AP courses is already a lot better than the rigor in schools that don't have them. But then also I think about, and I'm a former K-12 teacher, I think about the teachers who go to teach in these school districts. The research will show you 
that teachers who teach in more affluent school districts, look at their pedigree, look at their education program, look at their internship opportunities, look at their background. It's so different from teachers who go teach in impoverished neighborhoods, right? Teachers who maybe have gotten an education from Columbia or Harvard or Brown. And then you go into some of the impoverished neighborhoods and yes, they have grad, they have degrees, but the teacher prep programs are so different, right? Uh, so I think that access to teachers who have maybe had stronger prep programs, AP courses that you don't see, access to computer labs, smart boards, uh, laptops, iPads. Those are resources that you don't see typically in impoverished neighborhoods. And then this, this notion of, and I think many schools are trying to get away from this, this notion of zero, this zero tolerance policy. You see impoverished school districts where they make all the students stand up, line up on one side of the hallway and they will not proceed to go to the cafeteria until all people are quiet, all people are facing the same way, everybody's standing in line. And you don't see those in our more affluent school districts. They don't operate and govern themselves like that. And so when you think about students who have autonomy, students who have agency over their lives and over their education, you wonder why students of color come into uh, institutions of higher education without that, that skill set is because it was never developed. When you're always told what to do and never given the agency uh, over your own education, then you find yourself in a position where you're always looking for permission. So those are some of the things that just come to mind when I think about the disparities between students of color who are educated in impoverished communities who have a fighting chance when they get into college and they struggle. It's not because of all academics, it's some of the other social and cultural things that weren't properly developed prior to them coming. So going along with that, um, a lot of the work that you do at American University and with the Bond Educational Group has to do with education advocacy and also closing the opportunity gap. Um, on your website, it talks a little bit about like the Young CEO Project. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how these structural programs um, can help to alleviate the opportunity gap for some of those who are most at risk for the carceral system. Mm, yeah, great question. So when you look at um, specifically around small businesses, these small businesses are the backbone of our economy. They, it is what keeps the economy afloat. It is what really helps to propel and perpetuate the success of some of our large companies. But small businesses, there's a very small percentage uh, of small businesses who are run by people of color. And that's very similar to the number of people of color who earn graduate degrees or who earn even bachelor degrees. And so when my team was looking at how can we help assist the student, not just educationally, because I think that we, we spend so much time just on education, 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 and you both know that even when you get a degree, it doesn't guarantee a job. 
those days are over and a degree guaranteed a job, right? We're fighting for jobs. And this today's day, a bachelor's degree is like having a high school diploma. You almost need a master's degree or some terminal degree to really do well, right? And so we were really looking at that and we saw that there was a disparity in the in wealth and disparity in an education. We thought, let's help mold and guide students to be entrepreneurs and educated. So the Young CEO Project is the entrepreneurial track. These are students who are in middle school and high school who have developed an idea and we help them to um, craft their idea into a strong pitch and similar to Shark Tank. If any of you have seen how Shark Tank works, if you watch Shark Tank, you know, it, it's, it's not for students primarily, but also it doesn't represent most people who come from undeserved communities. And so this is similar to a Shark Tank where we find students from undeserved communities, help them to develop a strong pitch, connect them to uh, investors and connect them to people to help launch their business so that education can be, can be utilized not just in getting a degree, but also in owning something, also in developing skills that you need like um, resilience and determination and commitment um, and overcoming obstacles. Sometimes you don't always get that in education. Sometimes the, the resilience in education is different from the resilience needed when you fall flat on your face and have to pick yourself up and start all over again, right? And so just developing these soft skills entrepreneurially and, and through education, we believe provides students of color this well-roundedness to be able to compete in the world that we're in. You both mentioned earlier, the competition is great. And then when students enter in higher education and they're so, so far behind, how do we catch them up? And many times we don't, we don't catch them up. Many times they graduate, have degrees, but then they have no access to get into the world in which they got their degree in. So we're just teaching students, well, how to create your own. Similar to the Bond Educational Group, I have a PhD, but at the end of the day, I'm so, I'm more excited about the Bond Educational Group than I am about the paper that I got that says PhD, right? Because it's an opportunity to build something that will impact thousands and thousands of people. The degree only impacts me. But creating a business that impacts thousands, that's what's, that's what's worth it. So going along with that, do you see a way that um, other public schools or other schools in general can adapt similar programs to the Young CEO Project to help further increase opportunities for marginalized communities? Do you see this as a widespread um, program that can be kind of taken across the country as opposed to just in isolation in the DC area? Absolutely. And um, to, to, to share this point, my team on the Bond Educational Group is spread out from the board of directors all the way down to student interns. No, everyone is not in the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, our chairman and, and board of the board of directors and my business partner, uh, Clifford Knights, he is in Miami, Florida, right? And so we're already talking about how can we get the program in Miami-Dade public schools Right? How can we get the program along the coastlines of Atlanta, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina? So we're, we're looking at the entire East Coast 
with this program. And we know that once it, you know, it catches fire, we'll begin to move it, you know, out west some. But this was not a program designed just for the DMV. Uh, I, I think if one thing I learned from my, my PhD program was uh, never to put myself in a box, mm. right? And so the, the program helped me to always see that life is bigger than just what we see around us. And so if we don't design it, if we don't design something to be larger than us, then we sell ourselves short. So I knew going in like this, this thing has got to be bigger than me. And I got to bring people on that could help me be, help it become bigger than me. Right. So yeah, to your point that we, this has to catch fire in schools because the schools don't have necessarily the literature, the research, the background and the experience to create this on their own. So the best thing that they can do is to partner with organizations quite like the Bond Educational Group so that we can create these initiatives in school districts across the country. That's awesome. So going along with what you said about your colleagues being all over the place and kind of with a bunch of different backgrounds, um, what have your colleagues and students taught you and how have the people that you worked with both in the Bond Educational Group at American and um, as mentors, as your past mentors help you grow as an African educator? Mm -hmm. Two things come to mind quickly. First, never get comfortable. Because sometimes we can become comfortable in, in success, especially if it's success that we've not experienced before. When we experience it, it's like, oh wow, I've dreamed of this. But we never think about, but is there something more beyond that? So my, my team especially, really this my student interns and my student fellows they're they're the big thinkers right I'm, I'm much older than them and so they help me realize hey doc don't think small think big uh and then i want to say that my my team um my executive team and leadership team and uh, the board of directors uh they help me to not accept the word no when we're looking for investors or we're looking for donations or we're looking for um, you know, an opportunity, if it doesn't happen with one particular group that we thought we would get, uh, don't focus on the no, focus on the yeses that will come. And so not being comfortable and not focusing on the no, because the yes, it's on the way. Those are two big things that I'm really in, in grateful for that I receive from my team. That's incredible. That's really good advice. Um, so you, you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, and I want to go back to this point. Why do you think it's important that we have more black and brown educators to help deconstruct um, institutionalized racism in public school systems? And how do they play that role? Mm -hmm. I think there's a myriad of reasons um, why some, some literature will show and others has still have yet to be discovered. But the first thing that comes to mind is trust. Our students of color have a hard time trusting people who don't look like them because of everything that has happened in our society over the years, right? When they study their history books, and even when their history books keep out the, the most important things, and they learn this history from the, their communities, right? There's this feeling of distrust. There's this feeling of you're, you, I have to compete with you because 
you don't have my best interests at heart. You don't really care about me. You're just here to get a paycheck. So I think that having more people of color serve in all positions, not just education, really helps the community of color trust more. I was talking to a, a health educator the other day. She's CEO of a hospital uh, in um, St. Louis, Missouri. <clears throat> and when, when she was telling me about how um, these companies have gone out to do canvassing about COVID-19 in the black and brown community, why it hasn't really pushed the black and brown community to come in to get testing. I'm thinking, yeah, the canvassing is out there. It looks nice. The billboards are there. You've got commercials, infomercials. You've got infographics, all kinds of great stuff. But what she said to me, she said, the community does not trust. And so it needs a person of color to go in the community to share the same things that is on the canvassing in order for trust to be earned. And I thought that was just a great point. I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't think that America puts their money and their capital behind people of color to educate them to go back to the communities that they came from and to educate others. I think the thought is let, let white America educate the black and brown communities and if the black and brown communities refuse to be educated by white America, then it's on them. Wow. They're the ones at fault. They're the ones that are not listening. But I really think it's the other way around. White America empowers the black and brown community with leaders who can make decisions. And then they can go back to the communities and empower the community. So um, I think going along with that, like America now is more maybe not more aware, but they're focusing more on um, the issues of racism and police brutality, especially during these dual pandemics of COVID-19 and racism and police brutality. Um, how do you see your work evolving to encompass these issues um, now that people are kind of paying more attention and more willing to um, involve the different structures they work in with these issues? Mm. The COVID-19 has really pushed our, the work we do virtual, right? And so um, I'm excited about that because it's a, it's a new challenge. I think that there are a lot of uh, organizations who were very comfortable working face-to-face, -face, very comfortable jumping on a plane, uh, having a meetings uh, in person. And, you know, we just, we just have to learn how to shift and adapt. And I think the Bond Educational Group has done an amazing job uh, in doing that, we are um, working with a few school districts now um, doing equity audits. And it's an opportunity for us to even work virtually with school districts about how their organization is run and how every stakeholder in the organization feels about the climate and culture, right? We're talking about from students to, to teachers, to parents, to community members, to staff, personnel who are janitors and cooks. We wanna know from everybody about the culture and climate so that we can help organizations make that, make that shift. Uh, as far as racism though, um, racism is nothing new. It's just, it's just becoming more illuminated because we have access to technology. 
So the things that are happening now happened 20 and 30 years ago. We just never knew about it, you know, really depending upon where we lived. Uh, and if we did find out about it, it usually was much later, six months to a year or two years after it had happened, right? And so I think that because we have access to technology and we can do, we can know things in real time, it has really created uh, a need, a necessity for us to do something about it right now. And I'm grateful for technology because if you think about without technology, would we be doing anything right now about it? Probably not, right? We've been doing this for the last couple of hundred years. Why would we change? We're changing now because there's a prevalence to change because people are holding people accountable to the things that are happening. And it's not just the black and brown community, it's all communities. All communities are holding people in decision-making power, they're holding them accountable to the things that are happening. When I've gone out and protest, I'm not protesting with just people who look like me, it's people who don't look like me, who we're all on the front lines, right? Because we're tired of having these things happen in real time and nothing be done about them, right? So I, 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 don't, see, I don't see that being something that we do different. I think our approach with, um, with implicit bias, our, our approach with white supremacy, our, our approach with white privilege, I think that we're helping to those work even if we have to do it virtually but i believe that many organizations and institutions they're ready for this right mm -hmm. if you look at their their teams their their leadership uh teams or board of directors they're very diverse now more diverse than they've ever been and i think that people who are sitting on these board of directors and on these executive leadership teams uh, are tired of being quiet tired of being mute and so now yeah. I think all that has happened has given them the confidence to have the voice that they've been wishing that they could have. So um, white supremacy and um, is like very pervasive across all aspects of our society. Um, and you mentioned how there's not just one group interested in fixing this, but kind of a plethora of different groups mm -hmm. um, that are interested in combating white supremacy and kind of seeing more, um, diversity and equity and justice for all these different marginalized populations. How do you see the structures and the programs that you work with in the Bond Educational Group and um, at American University and with your PhD translating to help other marginalized populations? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> they're marginalized groups who work for the Bond Educational Group, not just people of color. Mm -hmm. right? Because women are a marginalized group. The LGBTQ community is a marginalized group. There's so many different marginalized groups. So number one, I know it was very important to have the Bond Educational Group represented by multiple marginalized groups. That's, that's number one. Uh, and anytime I started sensing, hold on, there's, there's too many of one group here. We, we got to change this up. I think that organizations and institutions need to start thinking about that as well. You walk into a room and the room is full of, you know, heterosexual people. You're, you're in the wrong room. You, you got to change it up. People who are of the same religion, you're in the wrong room. Same, same gender, you're in the wrong room, right? You got to intentionally change it up. And not intentionally because you, you, 
you're afraid of what people will say if they find out, but intentional because of what those different experiences bring to the table. Oh my God. When, when we have our team meetings, just the ideas that come from um, those meetings, the diversity of thought because of diversity of experiences. It's beautiful. It's one of the, it, it, it's just amazing. It, it, it allows me as the leader to sit back and to listen because I'm hearing so many different amazing perspectives that I don't need to, I don't need to talk sometimes. I just need to listen. Right. So I, I think that that's number one, but I think number two, I had this discussion yesterday and this is, this is something new I'm still working through. So I haven't quite figured out where I'm going to land with this, but because the black community has experienced such racial injustice for so long. Now the other marginalized communities who are also experiencing their own form of injustice, I believe that until the black community is able to experience real freedom and real liberation, Will we not begin to see some of the other marginalized groups experience that as well? And the reason I say that is because the black community has experienced it the longest. And so is it because they haven't created, they haven't found the right, I don't want to call it template, but they haven't found the right solution in order to free and liberate the black community? Because I believe that whatever that solution is, and I think it's simple. I mean, white supremacy holds, holds the reins to all that. Just let that go, right? I think it's very simple. But I think once the reins are released, I believe every other marginalized group will also experience freedom. I believe that, you know, when it comes to women, it's white supremacy. The, the, this, this patriarchy, uh, you know, notion that men are in charge when it comes to the LGBT community, white supremacy again, right? So it all goes back to that. And I think once, once we dismantle that, we'll start to see every other marginalized group become free, right? So I, I think that's what needs to happen. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think everyone can definitely learn a little bit from listening and to the, especially to those experiences that are um, different than their own. Um, Nuha, do you have any additional questions or? Um, I, I just wanted to say thank you so much, uh, Dr. Otley, for, for coming and sharing your personal story. Um, again, you mentioned that you grew up in the DC area and then you came back and invest in this community that you grew up in and to be that mentor that you found or didn't find as, um, as a young adult growing up here and to be that person for so many others and for generations to come through your legacy with the Bond Educational Group. And we look forward to touching base with you again in the future and seeing you know, how things are going. Yes, please remain in touch. This project that you guys are working on, I'm super excited by. I wanna be the resource, the best resource I can be, any name, any contact, you know, what, what, whatever you need, I wanna be able to provide that for your organization. And I, I'll, I'll leave with this, I, I wanna make sure that this work, this great work that you've started, I know life will pull you into different directions, but never forget about the, this experience that has brought you all together because it'll be this experience that will 
change the trajectory of people's lives, mm. right? So always remember that. It, your gift to this world and purpose in this world is about impacting and changing lives, right? That's why I love the work that I do, because it's all about changing lives. When speaking to Jason, it's hard to walk away not feeling empowered. You can see why he has such a strong reputation for student development, as he truly personifies the power of scholarship, perseverance, and grit. He's been a big proponent of this podcast, and we really enjoyed having him on to share his personal story of coming back to D.C. and investing in the community he came from. I found this episode to be the perfect bookend to the conversation that we had last week with Dr. Daryl Howard and his focus on equitable opportunities for learning and growth of male students of color in the primary education system and the importance of educators being role models. Today with Dr. Otley, we took the same conversation of equity to the collegiate level and beyond, because as he said, education disparities don't operate in a vacuum. Every child deserves a champion. Every young adult deserves a mentor that chooses to fight for them and that chooses to invest in them, regardless of their background. So thank you to both of them for coming on the podcast and being advocates for their communities as educators. And thank you for taking the time to listen. If you're interested in learning more about the Bond Educational Group and the Young CEO Project, please check out the link in the episode bio. If there's someone or an organization that you think should be on this podcast, please let us know. You can leave a comment or a review on your streaming platform, or you can find us through Instagram at sjaip.dc. We'll be back next week with another episode of Let's Talk Reform. See you then. <laughs>